It's the reason why God created mankind, and it's the main theme throughout His Word. So why doesn't worship come with instructions? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah offers some insights into what it means to worship God, both the process and the practice of praising the Lord. From his series on spiritual renewal, here's David with today's message, Getting Caught Up in Worship. You know, I have studied worship all of my life as a pastor, and I've given not only a message on worship, I actually preached a whole series of messages on worship some years ago. Always has seemed rather strange to me that the most beautiful and moving time for believers is when we worship, and yet it is the most confusing, conflicted, divided subject you can approach. And um, if you've ever delved into this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Today, we're going to strip away all of the excess baggage that often is associated with this subject and get right down to what happens when people worship. This is uh, step number four in the 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, getting caught up in worship from the ninth chapter of Nehemiah. You know, prayer is really powerful, and uh, the prayer code by O.S. Hawkins, which is our resource for the month of January, will help you learn how to pray with confidence and faith and an awareness of the Holy Spirit as you draw from world-changing prayers. As you explore 40 prayers that are found in the Scripture, you'll find life-guiding principles to apply to your life. In addition, you will discover how to pray for peace in times of change and for courage to overcome your fears. Each prayer you study in the prayer code leads you into a deeper relationship with God, making this simple little book effective and a wonderful addition to your daily devotions. This beautiful leather-covered book called The Prayer Code is our resource for the month of January, which means when you send a gift of any size to Turning Point to help us with the cost of airtime and production, we'll send this book to you as our way of saying thank you. Please do that today. Begin this new year with an investment in the Word of God and the teaching of its truth. Send your gift today and be sure and ask for your copy of The Prayer Code. All right, let's get caught up in worship. Worship is a rather elusive topic when you get right down to it. And there is no place where it tells us what to do. It seems like God in His Word has just let us watch it happen and then try to glean principles from the happening. It ought to be very important to all of us because it is the focus of the Word of God and it is the chief end of man to worship God and enjoy Him forever. As we observe in the ninth chapter, the worship of the Lord, there are some wonderful things that we can learn that will help us not only in corporate worship, but they will help us in our own private worship as well. Now you remember that this is quite a service they're having here in the ninth chapter. It lasted all day. In fact, in the third verse it says, they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one fourth part of the day, and for another fourth part of the day they confessed, and here's what I've underlined in my Bible, and they worshiped the Lord their God. Now, most scholars believe that the fourth of the day has to do with the 12-hour period taking that part of the day. So if we're talking about a fourth of the day, men and women, they had three hours of Bible study and three hours of confession and worship, and they lived to tell about it. That is amazing. 
In the process of their worshiping, there are some very interesting principles, and all I can do is highlight them, and I hope if you mark in your Bibles, you will have fun doing that. In a chapter of this length, we cannot even read the text, but just point to the subjects in the text that illustrate the principles. And I'd like to just glean from our study of the ninth chapter of Nehemiah some tremendously motivating principles about worship. Principle number one is this. Worship is the result of concentrating on the scriptures. Read the text carefully and discover that it was after they had read the word of God and they had studied the word of God that then they worshiped the Lord. I told you that in the Old Testament there are three ninth chapters that are important. There is Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9. And all of those chapters contain great prayers. All of them have some sense of worship in them. And in all of those chapters you will see that the precedent to worship is the Word of God. In Ezra 9 it says, Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel worshiped the Lord. In Daniel 9, Daniel says in the very first part of the chapter that when he understood the words of the book, then he began to pray. Sometimes I wonder if we haven't organized our services backwards. I wonder what would happen if some Sunday I would walk in here and as soon as everybody was situated, we had a brief chorus and then I walked to the pulpit and said, let's open our Bibles, we're going to study God's Word. When we got all done studying the Word of God, then we stood up to worship the Lord. Now I don't think this principle is a matter necessarily of the order of service or precedent in a certain hour, but it certainly is a matter of priority. Worship without the Word of God is meaningless. And one of the things that concerns all of us who are pastors and worship leaders is that if we are not careful, worship can become the focus instead of the response to the focus. It can become an exercise in the saying of words that have no content because there's no theological context for the words to have meaning. Worship, first of all, is the result of concentrating on the scriptures. Principle number two goes like this. Worship is the response of the confession of our sin. Notice that twice in the first few verses of the ninth chapter, we are told that they confessed their sins. Verse 2 says that the Israelites separated themselves from all their foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Verse 3 says, and for another fourth they confessed and worship the Lord their God. There's a phrase in the Old Testament that I've always liked, the Jews worship the Lord lifting up their hands. And the Bible says that when they worshiped, they were to lift up holy hands that were not stained with blood. That's simply a euphemism, if you will, that says when you worship God, don't come to him with unconfessed sin in your life. Don't come with your life all cluttered up with things you haven't dealt with. Don't come and try to worship God and you have unfinished business in your own personal life. In the New Testament, on two occasions, we are told that even if we have a difference with a brother, we cannot worship God. We are told that if we have an offense against a brother and we bring our gift to the offering and we want to offer that gift to God and we have not made things right with our brother, we're to leave the gift at the altar and go get things right with our brother and then come back and worship God. 
And then in another passage, very similar to it, the whole process is reversed, and it says if we think a brother has something against us and we bring our gift to the altar, God doesn't want our gift. He wants us to go back and get that thing straightened out with our brother and then bring our gift and offer it to God. Perhaps one of the reasons we have sterile worship on occasion is because we come to worship God and our hands are not clean. We've walked out of a dirty world that has defiled us, and we haven't stopped long enough on the way to the altar to get cleansed. In this passage of Scripture, they had a worship service that wouldn't quit. and The reason was they offered sacrifice and confession. Look, if you will, at verse 33. As we studied this in studying confession, I told you that here was a very good definition of confession. Here is the prayer, praying to God, and he is saying, However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. That's confession. That's coming to God and saying, God, you're right about us, and we're wrong. What we've done is a violation of your holiness. We confess it to you. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to say in pure and simple terms, even to a loved one, I am sorry, I know I did wrong. Usually it's, well, I'm sorry. Pure confession is what God seeks from all of us. He wants us to come when we're sensitive to sin in our lives and ask him to forgive us. And then out of the joy of that forgiveness, we come to worship the Lord. You know, some of the greatest moments in any man's life are the moments when he perceives at the very depth of his soul that he is a forgiven person. And when he gets caught up in the mystery of all of that, he is prepared to worship his God. So our worship, first of all, is the result of our concentration upon the Scripture, and secondly, it is the response of the confession of our sin and now I want you to notice as we kind of survey this chapter, principle number three, worship is the reverence for the majesty of God. And it's everywhere in this chapter. Verses five through seven are kind of the core of it all. It says here that the Levites said, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all, blessing and praise you alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all things in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God. Wow. Those are tremendous truths. And I took time this week and I wrote down all of these things, and I haven't got time to take you through and read them all, but if you can go through the Bible with me very quickly, I'll just read the verse, and I want to tell you that in this chapter alone are many, many references to the attributes of God, to his nature. Do you know what worship is? Worship is getting caught up in the nature of God. It's coming to grips with who he is. It's understanding that the God we worship is a great God who is worthy of our praise. If you go through this text, you will discover in verse 5 that he is exalted above all. Verse 8 says he's righteous. In verse 17, he is called gracious and merciful and slow to anger, which is a synonym for long-suffering. Also in verse 17, he is kind. Jump down to verse 25 and you find out he's good. Verse 30 tells you he's patient. Verse 31 says he is of great mercy. Verse 31 again says he's gracious and merciful. Verse 32 says he's great. 
and he's mighty and he's awesome. Verse 33 says he's just and he's faithful. Listen, you go through this chapter and write down all the things it says about God, all his attributes, and you'll have enough grist for your worship mill to keep you going for a couple of weeks. Worship is reflecting upon who God is. So often we come to God to thank him for what he's done, but worship begins with understanding who God is. We need to worship him for his very nature if he never did anything for us. We need to catch somehow the spirit of wonder and majesty about the God that we serve. Principle number four says that worship is the reaction to the works of God. If you will look at the 17th verse of the ninth chapter, you will note that in one segment of the history of the people of Israel, there is this statement, that they were not mindful of the Lord's wonders that he did among them. Could that not be written of many of us today, that we're not mindful of the Lord's wonders among us? his mighty works. I wish there was some way I could just condense everything in this chapter into one big power word that would help you to understand that the God we serve and the God we worship is a God who is active. He is not a passive God. He is not seated someplace up in heaven, sort of waiting. He is an active, working, involved God. And as these people worshiped the Lord, they rehearsed God's works. And once again, by way of survey, I just went through the chapter. And I haven't time for us to read all these verses, but I found my mind being riveted on the action words, the verbs. Just kind of follow along in your Bible. And I know you can follow as I just skim through this very quickly. Beginning at the sixth verse. You made heaven. You made earth. You made the seas. You made all things in them. You preserve them all. Verse 7. You brought, you chose, you gave, you made, you've performed your words. Verse 9. You saw, you heard, you showed, you made. Verse 11. You divided, you led. Verse 13. You came down, you spoke, you gave, you made known, you gave bread, you brought water, you told. Verse 19. You did not forsake them. You gave your good spirit. You did not withhold manna. You sustained. You gave kingdoms and nations. You multiplied children. Verse 23. You brought them into the land. You subdued their enemies. Verse 27. You delivered them. You heard. You gave. Verse 28. You heard. Many times you delivered. Verse 30. You had patience. Listen. The God we serve is not just sitting up there somewhere. He is active. He is an involved God. We worship him not only because of who he is, but we react to his works. One of the things that God has been trying to teach me is that we as his people need to learn how to polish monuments. We need to look back at the things God has done, as did the people of the Old Testament. And when he does something good for us, we need to build a monument in our heart, and then we need to come back often to polish that. And remember, this represents the work of God in our behalf. Those are some principles of worship. Just very quickly from the ninth chapter. They say to us that worship is the result of concentrating on the scripture. That worship is the response of confessing our sin. That worship is reverence for the majesty of God. And that worship is the reaction to the works of God. 
But I wrote down three things about the practice of worship, and I suppose that here I could get into trouble if I'm not careful, because this is where there is such diversity of opinion. How do we practice the worship of God? There are so many different ideas, and my pastor friends, all of them, had new and wonderful things that were being done. Now they have worship seminars all over the country where you can go and find out the newest and latest way to worship God. I don't have any new techniques, but I have two or three things that I feel very strongly about that this text teaches us. And all of us who love music and are involved in the worship of the Lord here need to take these to heart because they're critically important. In my estimation, these are some irreducible minimums of worship. First of all, true worship is not just an experience, it's an expression. We hear so much today about enjoying the experience of worship. What does that sound like? It sounds like it's something that is happening to me and for me. It is the outgrowth of our man-centered culture. I go to that church because I love their worship. Why do you love their worship? Well, I just feel so good in that part of the service. If that's your spirit, my friend, you have lost touch with the whole meaning of worship. There's nothing wrong with feeling good. There's nothing wrong with having a good spirit. But the purpose of worship is just not so that we can feel good. That's the byproduct of it. The purpose of worship is to express our love to God. And I want you to note in this chapter that this is not a chapter devoid of content. This is not a chapter filled with meaningless little ditties rehearsed over and over again in supposed worship of God. Have you ever been in services where people just say over and over again, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus? Praise Him for what? That's the question. Worship is not minus content. Worship is a heart that is overflowing with the knowledge of who God is and what God has done, and it cannot be content except to overflow in response back to Him. So don't get caught up in the experience of worship without the expression of it. Secondly, true worship is not passive and melancholy. True worship is powerful and majestic. Go back to the first part of the chapter and notice what happened. It says in the third verse that they stood up and read from the book of the law. Then Jeshua, verse 4, and all of those other people in that verse, cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And what did they cry out? Stand up and bless the Lord your God. You don't see them laid back in the pew, kind of half asleep. Praise Jesus. Listen, worship, if it's true worship, will bring you to attention. I thought about this today when I was reading over this passage. What would you do if right in the middle of this service, the Secret Service man walked out of here and said, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America. I've been in four or five meetings where the President has come to speak. And when that man walks out and he says, ladies and gentlemen, President of the United States of America. Nobody says, will the congregation please rise? Immediately, everybody's up on their feet. It is inbred within us that when a person who is respected with great dignity stands in your presence, if he is your leader, if he is the one to whom you give allegiance, you stand. 
If the Lord of glory should walk into this place, I think we would have two reactions. We would probably stand immediately, then we'd all hit our knees to worship him, wouldn't we? Hmm. Worship is not passive. There's something about worship that is majestic. Don and I have talked often about the fact that the one thing that a choir can do that nothing else in the music ministry can ever do is the choir can be majestic. And that's the spirit of worship that I pick up in the Word of God. I don't see any other kind of worship anyway. I'm sure there are times when we need to reflect upon the Lord, when we need to respond to what God has done in a more quiet way. But true worship, at the very core of it, is majestic and powerful. And you take me to any passage where worship is going on, and what you're going to see in the life of David and in the Old Testament worship experiences, you're going to see the orchestra and you're going to see the instruments and the voices and hundreds of voices giving praise to God and you just know that when we get to heaven, that's what it's going to be like. Hundreds of thousands of voices giving praise to God. I doubt if we'll sit around heaven singing quiet little hymns of reflection. Those are important in the overall experience of our response to God, but as I study the scriptures, I see majesty and power as we reflect upon God. And then the third principle, true worship, first of all, is not just an experience. It is an expression. It is not passive and melancholy. It is powerful and majestic. And thirdly, true worship is not about someone. True worship is to someone. I went through this passage of Scripture with my little red pen And I circled every second person pronoun that is directly related to the worship. And now you have to follow very quickly. Start with me in the sixth verse. Watch this now. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven. You preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God. Verse 8, you found his heart faithful. You have performed your words. You are righteous. Verse 9, you saw the affliction. Verse 10, you showed signs. You knew they had acted proudly. You made a name for yourself. You divided the sea. You led them by day. You came down upon Mount Sinai. You made known to them your holy Sabbath. And there are 41 yous in the ninth chapter. What is that? You don't worship about someone, you worship someone. Don't you think the heart of God just yearns to hear that intimate, personal praise? That doesn't mean we have to do away with all the third-person praise hymns. I've kind of categorized this in my own mind that third-person is praise, but second-person is worship. We need both praise and worship, but if we're talking about worship, as I understand the Scriptures, worship is directed to the Lord. So stand up and worship. Amen. Some of the most meaningful times I have ever had in worship have happened in my church as our minister of music, Tobin Davis, and our lead worship leader, Michael Sanchez, have just led us into a time where we could feel God's presence among us. The Bible seems to say that God inhabits the praise of his people, that he manifests himself in a special way when God's people praise him. And we're learning that from the book of Nehemiah. One of the steps to renewal is worship. We've been looking at getting back to the book and getting serious about obedience and getting concerned about sin. Today, getting caught up in worship. And tomorrow, 
becoming accountable for our conduct. How to be renewed in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you've gotten a little stale over these last months as we've faced all this COVID stuff and everything else. Here's a good plan to reignite your life. And this series, The Ten Steps to Spiritual Renewal, it's in a study guide format. It's also available on CD. You can get those materials from davidjeremiah.org. But the book, the prayer code, well, that's something you can get by sending a gift to Turning Point during the month of January. All you have to do is send your gift and ask for the book, the prayer code. And this book will be a companion. It's small enough to carry with you. It'll probably end up on the nightstand near your bed or on the coffee table in your living room. But more than anything else, I hope you'll let this book change your life. O.S. Hawkins has given us the prayer code. We'll give it to you for a gift of any size during January. Our message today originated from Shadow Mountain Community Church and senior pastor, Dr. David Jeremiah. If Turning Point is a blessing in your life, tell us about it by writing to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or calling 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code. 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions. Available in several durable and stylish cover options. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Turning Point's new 365-day devotional, Every Day with Jesus, is available now. Filled with inspirational readings from Dr. David Jeremiah and paired with Scripture, it will encourage you each day in your walk with God. This popular resource is yours with a gift of any amount in support of this program. And when you give a generous gift of $120 or more, you'll receive four copies so you can share them with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. If you've been blessed by the ministry of Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point, we would love to offer you two free ways to stay connected. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash magazine for a subscription to our monthly Turning Points magazine. Each exclusive issue is filled with encouraging articles and daily devotionals to strengthen your spiritual walk. You can also sign up to receive our daily email devotional and be a part of our community of friends who receive daily encouragement delivered straight to their inbox from Dr. Jeremiah. Written in a thought-provoking manner, this concise yet profound daily devotional delivers the refreshment and focus you need as you go about in today's world. You can join the more than 600,000 monthly subscribers who are building their faith each month through these free resources. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. The 17th century French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal made an observation that I think applies directly to one's relationship with God. He wrote, We are usually convinced more easily by reasons we have found ourselves than by those which have occurred to others. In other words, 
We will learn about faith much more quickly by trusting God ourselves than by hearing about someone else who trusted God. God once told the Israelites when they doubted him about something, he said, try me now in this matter. He wanted them to put him to the test so they would have first-hand knowledge of his faithfulness. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's faithfulness for yourself on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.